The following program is a PBS Wisconsin original production. You're watching Here and Now 2024 election coverage. A week of bluster at the U.S. Capitol has further fractured Republicans on immigration and aid for Ukraine. And Governor Tony Evers tells Eau Claire the startling and sudden closure of Chippewa Valley hospitals and clinics is wrong. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Tonight on Here and Now, we hear from Wisconsin senators on border security and funding for Ukraine. And part two of a story on the influx of immigrants to a small Wisconsin city. Charles Franklin takes the temperature of voters on presidential candidates and enthusiasm for November. And finally, the state of rural health care and what declining access means for millions. It's Here and Now for February 9. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin. The issue of immigration reform has exploded in the U.S. with a crush of migrants entering at the southwest border. Securing the border is the most important issue, according to Republicans in Congress. But this week, the bipartisan deal that included aid to Ukraine and Israel paired with immigration reform measures collapsed in the U.S. Senate. Among leading Republicans opposed to the foreign aid border security package, Wisconsin U.S. Senator Ron Johnson who joins us now. And Senator, thanks very much for being here. Oh, Frederica, thanks for having me on. What is your opposition to the bipartisan border security deal that is now effectively dead? It uh, made matters worse. Uh, and let me explain that. When, when we went into these uh, negotiations, which I don't think ever should have been secret, should have been public, uh, what we were asking for is let's use the Biden administration's desire for Ukraine funding as leverage to force President Biden to secure the border. Uh, he opened it up. He wants an open border. Uh, his Democrat colleagues in Congress want an open border. And uh, I don't believe they're negotiating in good faith. But we weren't looking for a massive uh, Rube Goldberg-like immigration bill. We, we were just looking for simple metrics, for example, tying Ukraine funding specifically to benchmarks that he would have to meet to have the money flow. And I think we were all shocked at what was produced. But the, again, many, many problems with this bill, but the biggest one was presidents already have the authority to secure the border. President Trump did it with a great deal of resistance uh, uh, from open border groups. Uh, President Biden used that same executive authority to open up the border. So he has the executive authority. He certainly has Republicans in Congress that if courts intervene, that we'll do anything we can to, to, to pass measures to overrule uh, those courts. But the fact of the matter is, is this bill by creating, for example, discretionary authority to stop uh, processing asylum claims at 4,000, now all of a sudden you are saying that no, the president really doesn't have that authority because we're gonna codify that discretion and that, that ability would run out after three years. So you would actually hamper a future president's ability to secure the border before thousands of people a day on average would come into the border. And by the way, this would normalize thousands of people a day, which is simply unacceptable. Isn't uh, something better than nothing in this regard? 
Not in, not in this case, no, because it would actually take away presidential authority from a president who wants to secure the border. It would codify an awful lot of the open border policies of the administration. So, again, I, I'm sorry to say that. I, I was telling my colleagues I would not only vote for, I would promote a bill that secured the border and provided support to the Ukrainian people, but that's not what we got. Can there be no negotiation? Well, it should have been a pretty simple negotiation. The, the president now realizes, because Mayor Adams, the mayor of Chicago, are talking about how a fraction of the 6 million people that the Biden administration have let in are going to destroy their cities. So now they're, they're finding out that maybe, from just standpoint of politics, we better do something. So now they're saying they want to secure the border. We're happy to work with them, but it's to secure the border. It's, it's not about providing billions of dollars for sanctuary cities. It's not about uh, providing you know, more levels of, of visas it's, and work permits and, and uh, pretty well uh, legalizing the abuse of the parole authority. Again, there's so many problems with this bill. Uh, you know, Beefing up Customs and Border Patrol so they can handle thousands a day. The, the better solution there is let's bring it down to a trickle. You want to shut down the border effectively? Yes, so we can establish a legal immigration system, which is what I was working with the Trump White House uh, in the in 2020. Unfortunately, he lost the uh, election. President Biden opened up the border, set back legal immigration reform uh, quite, for quite some time, I fear. What do you say to critics who say Republican opposition to the border deal is because former President Donald Trump weighed in against it? I completely disagree. I certainly never got a call. This wasn't our concern. We looked at the actual components of the bill, and and so did a lot of other people, too. I mean, the fact that this bill collapsed in under 24 hours tells you all you really need to know. Plus, you know, Senator Murphy, one of the Democrats' chief negotiators, said this never closed to the border. Uh, we had a slight increase in, in the uh, asylum uh, standard. Yeah, that just, I mean, that's the Democrat negotiator. So. This bill would have been worse than doing nothing. It actually would have harmed a future president's ability to secure the border. That's why we had to reject it. Meanwhile, here we are now, and you did not vote to advance a now separate funding bill for emergency foreign aid. Why not? Well, first of all, our top priority should be to secure our own border before we spend money to secure Ukraine's or any other nations. So we still want to make that point. But I've got real questions about the Ukraine war. Uh, the only way this thing ends is in a negotiated settlement. Every day that goes by, and I'm going to hate the settlement, but every day that goes by, more Ukrainians die, more Russian conscripts die. I take no joy in that. These are people who yanked out of villages. More of Ukraine gets destroyed. So what our actions ought to be directed toward is bringing Putin to the negotiating table uh, rather than set, you know, fueling the flames of war, a, a bloody stalemate to the tune of another $60 billion. So, again, I have just fundamental disagreement with people who want to you know, fuel those flames. So, so again, you oppose um, giving this emergency aid to Ukraine? Certainly without securing our border first, yes. Speaking of uh, the border, migrants are relocating to cities, as you know, uh, but including the small city here in Wisconsin of Whitewater. Um, Whitewater is asking the federal government for financial help. What is your message to Whitewater officials seeking that assistance? Well, I met with those officials. I'm completely sympathetic with the plight they are in caused by President Biden and his Democrat allies in Congress, their open border policy. Uh, if there's federal funds going to be flowing to make up their, for their losses, it should come out of other spending. I, I would suggest to some of the green energy boondoggles, the $400 billion that are going to really cost about $1.2 uh, repurpose those funds.
I'd be fully supportive of that. Senator Ron Johnson, we leave it there. Thanks very much. Have a good day. Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin was unable to join us this week. In support of the border security bill, she said, quote, this bipartisan compromise was a promising opportunity to invest in high-tech border security, disrupt the deadly flow of fentanyl into our country, streamline our asylum process, and ensure Wisconsin communities receiving migrants have the resources they need. As to resources needed, last week we heard from city officials in Whitewater who hope the state government will soon allow migrants to earn a driver's license. This week we take a look at what the community is doing to support the newcomers and what other support the city might need. It's another generation of families coming here um, trying to get jobs, you know, feed their children, get their children through school. Conservative estimates assume about 800 to 1,000 migrants from Central and South America have come to Whitewater since 2022, straining local resources. We're trying our best. Some of the most vulnerable in that population are children. To really, how can we advocate for these children? Miguel Aranda is a member of the Whitewater School Board and a second-generation immigrant from Mexico. So if we can advocate for funding, for resources to make it a smooth transition for um, a lot of these families and their children. Um, that's what I'm going to continue advocating for. With this new influx of students, Aranda says the school district needs more funding. Wisconsin currently sits on a $3 billion budget surplus. Coming from this state, I would understand if there's no money, we have to make hard decisions. But to know that there's a surplus, it almost looks like the money is being dwindled right in front of our faces. But there are places in Whitewater that have acted as a stopgap to help the new arrivals. Our, our mission is to meet the needs of the, the community, whatever they are. Christine Zavios and Kay Robers are co-founders of the community space in Whitewater. Their mission is to provide everything a person might need, from bedding to furniture to food, all for free. If they've never been here before and they come in and see all these things and we tell them that they can just have it, they don't understand. I've had the privilege of witnessing somebody coming in, you know, maybe having their worst day and coming in and just needing some support, some food, some whatever, and seeing them slowly relax and realize we're not going to ask them for any papers. They were really happy to be able to, you know, let us know what their life was like. The community space has been accepting donations since 2019, but has ramped up its efforts in the last two years. I'd certainly like to say that there has been no crisis. Um, have we had to stretch and adjust? Absolutely. Uh, but there is no crisis. We've gotten so we can communicate pretty well. We have, we use our um, translate on our phones and they will also reach for their phone. They are open on Tuesdays, Wednesday nights and Saturdays as a complement to the local food pantry. I can stand up in the middle of the room and say, is there anyone here that's bilingual? And inevitably I'll get a nine-year-old child which is awesome, you know, and I, and I always say to the child, you know, isn't your mother proud of you? Tell her you did a really good job and we're proud of you. We like to think that half of what we do is what we share and give away and half of what we do is how we make people feel. City officials are also looking to get help for the newcomers. I think the, the underlying theory here is that we, um, we know we need resources. Dan Meyer is the chief of police in Whitewater. This is ap apolitical. We have no, um, no dog in that fight. Is we simply need more staffing. 
He says over the last two years, his department's work has gotten much more difficult and time-consuming. One of the things that has been difficult for us as law enforcement is just working with a population that, um, generally speaking, is, is not trusting of, of government because they come from a place where they, they don't trust their government. To try and get some help for the city, Meyer and city officials sent a letter to state and federal officials in December. We need more, um, more officers so that we can get out and patrol at the level that the community is used to having us out there. But the letter requested more than just a boost in law enforcement funding. This is a situation where we are a poor town that has limited resources and not enough shared revenue from the state. And we would like to help people make sure that they're getting jobs, you know, shelter, food, all those things. Brienne Brown is a member of the Whitewater Common Council. We need the, the larger picture to be focused on. The real problem is not that there are people here. It's just that the, the, the city is not prepared. Meyer and Brown say they have heard from local officials who seem willing to help. Plus, Wisconsin U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin plans to visit the city soon to see what she can do to help. Wisconsin's other U.S. Senator, Ron Johnson, visited with city officials back in November. So obviously, President Biden, Democrats do not want a secure border. We have During a press conference, Johnson blamed what he called a flood of migrants in Whitewater on the Biden administration. But while city officials look wherever they can for resources, immigrant advocates say the new arrivals should not become political scapegoats. There's a reason why we are here. Um, I have my own family here. There's, I don't have any plans of leaving, in, leaving Wisconsin. It's really contributing to the vitality of our community. For Here and Now, I'm Nathan Denzine in Whitewater. At this moment in time in Wisconsin, it's a dead heat between Joe Biden and Donald Trump in the latest Marquette University Law School poll. And that's not all the survey shows. Uh, we turn to poll director Charles Franklin for more. And Charles, thanks very much for being here. Good to be here. So I was going to talk about this a little bit later in our discussion, uh, but the special counsel choosing not to charge President Joe Biden over his handling of classified documents also called him an elderly man with poor memory. Now, your poll found that 61% of respondents believe Biden too old to be president compared to 29% for Donald Trump. How do you think those numbers would look if you were in the field after this report? Well, I think it'll only move further in the this too old to be president describes Biden very well. That 61% this time is already up from 55% in November. Uh, and so I do think that there's not any evidence in those two months worth of polling that Biden is addressing the age issue. Now, the age issue has been with him for a long time. Donald Trump is only four years younger, and yet far fewer people see him as too old. How does the campaign deal with this? given this report and these explicit examples. And now, of course, everybody watching for every time Biden misspeaks. Meanwhile, when you were in the field, uh, your poll showed a dead heat uh, with uh, Joe Biden at 49 percent and Donald Trump at 49 percent among registered uh, voters. But third party voters polled way higher candidates pulled way higher than normal with RFK Jr. seeing 16 percent. Uh, whose votes is he siphoning off? Well, it's interesting. So when we just make it the head to head, it's the dead tie. When we give five candidates as the choice, 
Kennedy at 16 is taking a little more actually from Republican voters than from Democratic voters. But Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate, takes 8% from Democrats and only 1% from Republicans. Uh, and Cornell West gets only a point or two from either party. So you got to put that in the perspective that in 2016, we had a recent high water mark for third party votes here in Wisconsin, and that was only five and a half percent. So the idea that we would see a third party vote totaling 20 percent or so mm -hmm. seems unlikely come the fall. But it does reflect the dissatisfaction with both of the top party candidates. We found 18% said they had an unfavorable view of both Biden and of Trump. How do those 18% shake out over the year? There is another matchup that's super interesting and kind of speaks to this, and that is the uh, Biden-Haley matchup. Nikki Haley in your poll getting 57% to Biden, 41%. What does this say about both Biden and Trump and Haley. I think it's an important indication that Biden and Trump both have serious disadvantages. And when you put them head to head, you come up with a tie. But when it's Biden versus Haley, who really is still not very well known in the state, Biden's liabilities stand out. In fact, his 41% against Haley is the same as his job approval number. And so that's just a good example that a candidate without Trump's baggage could at least hypothetically do much better to exploit Biden's weaknesses. But just as Biden has this too old to be president, 53% say Trump committed illegal acts after the election in 2020. So there's the flip side of who's net got real problems. So, and that, and that might say something too about voter enthusiasm. Um, in that regard, 49% uh, of your respondents say they are very enthusiastic about compared to 70% in 2020. Yeah, yeah, it's dramatically different. And that 2020 number is from January 2020 as well. It's not late in the campaign, it's the same month and also right before COVID hit. So it's before the COVID effects, if any. Um, you know, again, I see that both Biden and Trump are seen more unfavorably than favorably. Each of them has these difficulties. However, on enthusiasm, those who are very enthusiastic go heavily for Donald Trump. It's the less than very enthusiastic, somewhat not to, not at all. Biden wins each of those groups very substantially as well. And yet, despite that, they're tied when you push people to who you'll vote for. The challenge for the Democrats is, how do you deal with those less enthusiastic people that like, that are disappointed with Biden but like Trump not much at all? Can you mobilize them and get them to the polls? Or are those exactly the people that may say, eh, not good enough, I'll vote third party this year? I'm Nine make... months to go to settle that question. <laughs> so as to um, Governor Tony Evers in Wisconsin coming back stateside, his approval is right side up with 51% approving of his job performance and 44% disapproving. That stacks up pretty well. It's not bad at all. It's uh, down just slightly from November, but up a bit from the election in the fall of 2022. He's doing pretty well. He's generally been above water on that approval measure here in the state. Which seems um, interesting to me given how much kind of discord there is. Well, there's still plenty of discord. There are a couple of things in this poll. 
From November to January, the percent of people saying the state's headed in the right direction has bumped up significantly, and the percent of people saying the national economy is getting better or is not as bad as they saw it in November, that's also about 10 points higher than November. And finally, Wisconsin's economy is seen as even better than the national economy. Good news for us. Charles yes. Franklin, thanks very much. Thank you. Governor Tony Evers visited Eau Claire this week, where the community is still reeling from late notice about closures of two hospitals and 19 clinics. The governor said he was disappointed with the hospital sister's health system's lack of notification and how it was handled was wrong. In an interview, local representative Karen Hurd shared her concerns. As far as the impact, I consider this to be huge. Not as big as the Maui fires, but certainly bigger than the East Palestine, Ohio train derailment where they had the big chemical spill. It's bigger than that. I see it as bigger than that. This, people are, I see that people are going to die. But I want you to know that the state representatives for the Chippewa Valley, we are living, breathing this every moment and trying to come up with something, something to be able to, to help. For more on the greater impact of these closures and the overall trend of rural health access declining, we turn to John Ike, director of the Wisconsin Office of Rural Health at the UW School of Medicine and Public Health. And John Ike, thanks very much for being here. My pleasure. So when hospital systems like this pull out of rural areas in Wisconsin, how big of a shock is that to health care access? Um, uh, in a lot of ways, I think it's a shock. It's a shock for patients who have to now drive further to get to appointments or to care for loved ones. It's a shock to the EMS um, system in that they have to take patients longer and longer for care. Um, and I think it's also, it's jobs and it's also a hit to the local economy. Um, a small community is more attractive to all kinds of new businesses uh, if they have robust health care. And if that's missing, um, that's challenging as well. Because where are people finding care in the state of Wisconsin? We have a map to look at to show kind of the drive times uh, that people experience getting to an emergency room. Yeah, absolutely. So our office did an analysis of that drive time. And you can see that. So the green is 10 minutes, the yellow 20, and the red 30-minute access. Uh, so it's, it's fairly obvious where the gaps are. Uh, the North Woods uh, has... Uh, sort of the biggest challenges there. Um, and you can see where, in a sense, the clusters are as well. And I think that cluster is relevant to this situation where you have Eau Claire County uh, so close to the Twin Cities. And these are very large systems. They're competing pretty fiercely with each other. And so there's a lot of pressures on them. Um, and so I think we see that um, in this situation particularly. I think there's a reason that it happened here versus other parts of the state. Representative um, Hurd said people will die. Is that what we're talking about? Well, healthcare is always life and death. Um, and so I do think that um, it's going to take longer for people to get to care. It's going to take, um, it's, it's going to be more challenging for them. For EMS in particular in rural areas, we're very concerned about drive times. Um, and so that is possible, but I think that 
we have a robust healthcare system in the state and people are doing their best um, and are doing are providing excellent care so it is a challenge for sure Healthcare providers, both urban and rural, uh, face worker shortages. Is it worse in rural areas? Um, I think, uh, you know, the pandemic brought this sort of social uh, uh, challenge, um, sort of the divisions, the partisan divisions, where we take healthcare and politicize it. Um, and so you have workers who, who went from being heroes to suddenly being pariahs or political operatives or all of that. And I think that really plays out in a smaller community. People know each other better. As someone walks past me in a city street, I may not know they're a healthcare provider, but if it, it's a community where everyone knows who works at the hospital or the clinic, um, you're more in a spotlight. Um, those challenges that I think we all felt with family, extended family and neighbors who disagree about topics, I think that's very compelling, it's very close to home in a smaller community. And so I think those kind of social issues impacted the, the workforce, not to mention the fact that they were day after day of this work and seeing people very sick and dying. It takes an emotional toll and I don't think it's as easy as we don't have to wear masks anymore. I think it's, I still don't feel great at my job. Maybe I should consider an early retirement or maybe I should consider a different line of work. And that persists? It does. I, I think, you know, in business, they talk about how culture eats strategy for lunch. These are cultural issues, and that means that we're going to see these are hard to change issues, um, and they're going to take a while. It's going to take a lot of different um, solutions, um, and I don't think we'll see it go away quickly. Um, people are working very hard on it, um, but it will take time. Speaking of solutions, uh, what kind of measures are needed to expand access to quality rural health care? I think in Wisconsin we're very lucky. Up until recently we haven't seen a lot of hospital closures. Um, and so I think we're doing well. We have, to, we have to fill in these gaps that have been created. And I think healthcare systems will do that. Um, I think we have to look at building back the workforce. That's a long process as well. And I think also broadband is very important. If we're providing care to patients who have a drive to get into to a follow-up appointment um, or a check-in, um, them being able to communicate with their providers from their home or from a mobile situation is really important, but there just isn't the broadband and cellular coverage in rural areas that we need. John Ike, thanks very much. Thanks for inviting me. For more on this and other issues facing Wisconsin, visit our website at pbswisconsin.org and then click on the News tab. That's our program for tonight. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Have a good weekend. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and friends of PBS Wisconsin.